Well, good evening, everybody. Let's open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 as we get ready for Q&A night for the month of February. And we will be in Genesis primarily as tonight. I have four questions from the book of Genesis, all of which have come from our Bible reading uh, during these first six, seven uh, weeks of the year, and I do want to give these questions preference uh, since they are uh, recent and things that hopefully if you're following along in the reading plan, these are maybe even things that have been relevant to you and you've been thinking about as well. Uh, if you're visiting with us and you've never been here for uh, our Q&A night, you're going to see and figure out pretty quickly that the, the format is maybe a little bit different than a traditional sermon. However, what is unchanged and what is just like the sermon that you heard this morning uh, is that we just want to try to appeal to the Word of God. We just want to go to the Scriptures uh, to try to find Bible answers for the Bible questions that we have and the questions that have been submitted uh, to me for us to consider this evening. It is great to see everybody tonight. Hope that you've had a good afternoon and been able to enjoy this day. It's been a wonderful day that the Lord has given us. And I'm glad to have this second opportunity uh, as the day is winding down to be able to come together and to sing and to pray and to uh, study and to just encourage each other. I just enjoy very much our, our Sunday evening assemblies and I, I hope that you feel the same way. In Genesis chapter 1, I'm reading here in the account of creation. And specifically, we are reading here about the creation of humanity, of the first two human beings. And there we read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. This very first question comes right out of this passage, and the question is this, does being created in God's image, as Genesis 1 talks about, does that mean that we look like God? Now, if you were opening a Bible for the very first time, if you were reading those verses for the very first time, and if you didn't get any further than page 1 of your Bible then I can see very much how one would arrive at that conclusion, that that seems to be what that kind of sounds like, that yeah, we we look like God, we're made in His image, so we must look like Him in some way. Especially when you read that verse and it talks about how God has differentiated humans from the animal kingdom. He's given us dominion over the animals. And so with all of that together, it's kind of understandable that someone might conclude that bearing God's image, that maybe what that means is, is that means that we, in some way, we share a similar appearance to the Lord. Having said that, though, I do not believe that that is what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 means. First of all, the reason that I say that is because, number one, God is a spirit. It's what John 4 verse 24 says, that verse that was on the screen at the beginning of the service, at the beginning of every service, that God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. What that means is is that means that God is an entirely different being than you and I. We are physical beings. We are made up of of flesh, of bone, of material things, things that can be seen. God, on the other hand, He is a spirit being. If somebody comes to me after services and asks, Well, what's a spirit being look like? I don't have a clue. I don't know. Never seen a spirit being. At least not to my knowledge have I seen a spirit being. But you can't look at a physical being and say, oh, well, well, clearly that, well, that's what God looks like. I I can see it right there. What you look like, that's in some way what God looks like. You can't do that. 
That's a very apples and oranges kind of comparison. In fact, look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll step out of Genesis for just a second here. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses actually makes this very point. In Deuteronomy 4, there's this long section here where Moses just is trying to tell the the people of Israel, don't be making idols. Don't do that. Don't try to make some kind of a graven image of God. Don't try that. That's not going to lead anywhere good. And part of Moses' argument here is that even if you were going to make an idol of God, you wouldn't know how to make it because you don't know what God looks like. That's why it's foolish to even try to do that. Deuteronomy 4, pick up with me in verse 15. In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 15, Therefore, Moses says, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. You didn't see what God looks like. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or a female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Moses says, you don't know what God looks like. He doesn't look like us. He doesn't have a physical appearance in the way that you and I have a physical appearance. His form, His his likeness, it's not comparable to anything here created on the earth. So having said that, I feel very comfortable saying that the image of God, that's used that expression there in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that that's not talking about us having some kind of shared physical appearance with the Lord. And so that then begs the follow-up question, well, Well, what is Genesis chapter 1 talking about? And that's probably a little bit harder for us to answer. The expression that's used in Genesis chapter 1, in the image of God, it's a very unique expression. It's not used many other times in Scripture, and the few times that it is, it doesn't really shed a whole lot of light on its meaning to help us this evening. What some scholars have said is they have said that, well, the image of God, what that refers to is that refers to the the mental and intellectual faculties that man shares with his Creator. And I might get on board with with some of that. It is true that human beings, we possess very special abilities that the rest of the created world does not possess. We possess the ability to, to reason and to choose. We have a conscience about things and other such qualities like that that sets us apart from all of the other the other animals and the beasts of the earth. But I think what's really at the heart of being made in the image of God is the fact that we have an eternal component to us. We have an eternal side to our being. That we have a soul. That we are eternal as God is eternal. That's what really separates us more than anything else from the animal kingdom. Somebody may go to the thing there about having mental and intellectual faculties and somebody may say, well, you know, I've seen monkeys do some pretty smart stuff. Or you know what? Dolphins, they're pretty smart. They seem to know what's going on. Well, you know what? That might be so. But I'll tell you one thing that dolphins don't have and monkeys don't have and whatever other kind of, you know, amazingly smart animal you might think of doesn't have. They don't have this. They don't have that eternal component to them. They do not possess a soul. In fact, in Genesis chapter 9 and in verse 6, after the flood, God says there that you can't just go around killing and murdering other people 
Because those are people who are made in the image of God. Well, why then can you go and kill an animal, but you can't just go around and kill a random human? Well, that's because humans possess something. They possess a quality that is quantitatively different from an animal. We bear the image of God, and I believe that that's probably a reference to the fact that we have an eternal soul. When this physical vessel that our soul currently resides in, when this physical body, when it passes away, that spirit, that eternal part of us, it continues on. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says it goes back to God who made it. There is a continued existence beyond the grave, and I believe that that is the significance of this idea that we are bearing the image of God. Let's turn our attention now to a very different kind of question in Genesis. Look with me in Genesis chapter 30. Fast forward a little bit. In Genesis chapter 30, we just read this a couple of weeks ago in our reading. As we read here about Jacob's incredibly dysfunctional family. If you remember, just to kind of set the scene here, Jacob has, has two wives. It's not what he wanted, but that's what he ended up with. He ended up with two wives, Rachel and Leah. And that's complicated by the fact that they are sisters. And both of those women are vying for his attention. Rachel is barren. In fact, Rachel is the one that Jacob really loves, but she is barren. She is unable to conceive a child. While Leah, on the other hand, she is desperate to have Jacob's affections, and the way that she thinks that that's going to happen is by having more children. Maybe that will get my husband to love me and to pay attention to me. And so in the midst of all of that drama that's going on in that household, and there's even a couple of other women that are involved, and they're bearing children in all of this, in the midst of all of that drama, Genesis chapter 30 tells us in verse 14, Genesis 30 verse 14, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, that was the oldest born child, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field, and he brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Okay, let's make a deal. I'll let Jacob lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. And so when Jacob came home from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so she lay, or so he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived, and she bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called that child's name Issachar. The question from that passage is a term that pops up, I think, three different times in those verses, and that is that term mandrakes. What exactly is the significance of these mandrakes in Genesis chapter 30? Why is there fussing going on here over Rachel trying to get those mandrakes? I mean, come on, hasn't Leah ever heard of of sharing some of your crops, sharing some of the stuff from the garden, you know, being nice to those around you? And furthermore, what exactly makes these mandrakes so valuable that Rachel is actually willing to bargain and to trade her husband for the night in exchange for these mandrakes that her nephew Reuben has found? Well, maybe the first thing that would be helpful for us is to just know what a mandrake is. I didn't know what a mandrake was. I had to do some studying about what a mandrake was. A mandrake, here's a picture of one. A mandrake 
is a Mediterranean plant that has a short stem, and it has unusually large forked roots that sometimes even resemble a human body with arms open and with legs even spread. And I, I use that picture because that's kind of what that looked like to me. It looked like the kind of the torso of a, of a human body. And it has leaves, and it has these bell-shaped flowers that bloom on it, which is then followed by these little yellowish, orangish uh, fruits, these little berries that bud on it. And at their maximum size, a mandrake, the plant itself, only gets to about 18 inches. It's not, not some huge big thing. Now, what's interesting about mandrakes is that the root and the leaves, they actually contain some hallucinogenic properties. And actually, if taken in the wrong doses, it can be poisonous and it may even be lethal. If you ingest those things whole, you may suffer all kinds of consequences from that. Your vision may be blurred. Your heart may start to race. It actually can lead to asphyxiation. You may die if you take that stuff in the wrong way. In the ancient world, though... Mandrakes were believed to possess magical qualities. In fact, in medieval times, mandrakes were used by witches and were used to make magic potions. Again, I'm, I'm kind of just putting all of that in quotations. I hope you don't believe that I believe those things. But people believed in kind of the superstitious, superstitious qualities that mandrakes supposedly possessed. People sometimes would even wear them as an amulet, as a, on a necklace or as a pendant upon their, their, the front of their, their clothing because they believed that mandrakes brought good fortune. Kind of like a, kind of like a lucky rabbit's foot. And the truth of the matter is that superstitious view of the mandrake fruit, that may actually be what's at play right here in Genesis chapter 30. Because one of the most widely held beliefs about mandrakes in that time is that mandrakes served as an aphrodisiac. That actually they were kind of a fertility drug. In some cultures, it was actually believed to cure men who were sterile. In fact, that Hebrew term, if you were looking at a Hebrew Bible, that Hebrew term for mandrake there in Genesis chapter 30, it's this word, dudaim, and that word literally means love plant. Even with some just some recognition just in the word itself. That people thought that there was some kind of, of love properties to it. The folklore of the time was that mandrakes could, could put off this beautiful fragrance. The kind of fragrance that would stir a husband and it would stir a wife to intimacy with one another. And even so, when that fruit was eaten in its proper doses, it actually would help make the woman... Fertile. In fact, this isn't even the only mention of the mandrake in the Bible. If you were to read in the Song of Solomon, in chapter 7, Song of Solomon, of course, is that book of the Bible that celebrates married love. And in chapter 7, the young man and the young woman, they are now married. They're united together in marriage. And we read there about them using the mandrake fruit to create desire and, and romance in their marriage. And in that context, it's good and it's proper and it would be right. And so with all of that background about the mandrake, it seems that this probably is the significance of the mandrake fruit in Genesis chapter 30. What's going on there? You've got Rachel. She's barren. Despite all of the best attempts, they're not, she's, not, she's not having a child. She wants a child so bad. In fact, many times for women in that culture, that was the sign of, of being a good wife and being a good woman was the fact that you could have children. So she is unable to conceive a child. And she is desperate to have a child. 
And so on this occasion, she sees her nephew Reuben walk in with these freshly plucked mandrake fruits. And perhaps in that moment of desperation, she offers to make this trade for the mandrakes in hopes that the fruit's special, maybe even magical qualities might help her be able to conceive a child with her husband. Now, whether that means that Rachel actually believed in the magical and superstitious and mystical ideas of the time about the mandrakes, the text doesn't say that, and I don't want to force that upon her. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 30, would you drop down to verse 22? In verse 22, Rachel finally does become pregnant. She is able to conceive a child. And I want you to notice that the credit for that is not given to some magical, mystical fruit. The credit for that in Genesis 30 and verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. Whether mandrakes had some kind of medicinal value in that time or not, I really can't say. But in the end, Rachel being blessed with a child, and the child here is Joseph, who we talked about this morning, that was the result of God's grace and God's favor. And that is entirely where the credit and the glory needs to be attributed. Let's shift gears again. We're making some hard shifts as we go from question to question this evening. This time I'm looking in Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 10, uh, this is one of those genealogy chapters that was not included in the reading schedule this year. But we had some hardcore Bible nerds who really wanted to read this chapter anyway. And I'm glad that they did, because it helped produce this next question. Uh, Genesis chapter 10 records for us the descendants of the sons of Noah, Shem and Ham and Japheth. And I don't want to read this whole chapter because it's a difficult read with all of these names. But I do want us to notice kind of just the concluding statement at the end of each of these boys' genealogy. So, for example, look with me in chapter 10 and in verse 5. This is about the sons of Japheth. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. Drop down to verse 20. This is the descendants of Ham. Verse 20 says, These are the sons of Ham. By their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then we see the same thing again. Drop down to verse 31. These are the sons of Shem. By their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So we're told that these various descendants of the sons of Noah, they all spread abroad, all across the face of the earth. And each of them, it says, each of these families, each of these clans and these groups, they all had their own languages. But then you read chapter 11. And how does chapter 11 begin? Chapter 11 begins in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Verse 2, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. What exactly is going on right here? The question that this observant reader wanted to notice as they read chapter 10, and then they started to read into chapter 11, particularly the story about the Tower of Babel, the question is this, why does Genesis chapter 10 say that people scattered and they all had their own languages. But then we come to chapter 11 and it says that they're all in one place and they all had one language. What exactly is going on here? 
I thought that this this scattering and the dividing of the languages that happens here a few verses down in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 with the Tower of Babel, I, I thought that that happens there. So why does the previous chapter say that this has already happened, that people have already spread and they've already come up with new languages? We read this and this just seems out of order. Did maybe someone, when they were writing the Bible, Moses, we believe, wrote Genesis, did maybe Moses get something out of order here? Is this maybe even a contradiction? We have lots of places like this that cause people headaches and this seems like maybe there's a contradiction going on. Well, actually it's not a contradiction at all. Actually what this is is just a narrative device where chapter 11 is just going back and giving details that help to clarify things that chapter 10 didn't talk about. Maybe to just kind of say that another way. Genesis chapter 10 gives us kind of the quick overview And then Genesis chapter 11 fills in the gaps. It fills in the more specific details. And we find that same kind of technique used in all kinds of other books of history, secular books of history. Maybe you're reading a book about about World War I or or, or different world wars. And maybe one chapter is talking about World War I and giving an overview of that. And here's a list of all the major events that happened in World War I. But then you turn the page and you get to the very next chapter... And it seems to kind of do a rewind. And it starts giving all kinds of details of what the world was like before World War I. And it starts telling you about all the details of what led up to World War I taking place. That happens a lot in writing. In fact, if you've been reading along in Genesis, you've already seen this literary device being used earlier. In fact, we've even read some of it tonight. In Genesis chapter 1 and in verse 27... We read that verse that says that God, He made male and female. That's kind of the Cliff Notes version of God creating the first two human beings. But you keep on reading and you get into chapter 2, and what do you get in chapter 2? Well, what you get in chapter 2 is you get the more detailed account of that. You get details about how God formed man from the dust of the earth, and He breathed out into His nostrils the breath of life. And you furthermore, you get the details about how the woman was made and how there was the rib taken out of the man and she was formed from that way. You get all of that information. Evidently, the author of Genesis, again, we think this is Moses, he seems to maybe have been kind of a fan of putting the effect before talking about the cause. And I appreciate this particular question being asked because while I do think it's relatively easy for us to answer, It is something that if you're just reading through your Bible, it can very easily cause you some confusion. We're trying to stitch together and piece together the the story of Genesis here, what's going on. And my hope is, is that by kind of talking about this, maybe that will help us when we get to other chapters. Because we'll see this again happening in the Bible. Well, that will help us as we continue to read the Bible throughout this year and throughout our lives. I'm doing good on time tonight. Let's see if we can finish up in a timely fashion in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, hard shift one more time. Genesis chapter 5 is another of those chapters that we did not include in the reading plan this year. It's kind of tedious to read all these names and dates and so forth. But once again, we had some folks who just could not stay away, got to read all of this, couldn't stay away from it, and you know what, that's okay. And from it comes this question. Look in Genesis chapter 5, let's read verse 3. In Genesis 5 and verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 
hundred years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. The question here is this. The question is, how do we explain to an unbeliever or to a skeptic, how do we explain and somehow rationalize to them these really, really long lifespans that are recorded here in Genesis chapter 5? This is the kind of passage that doesn't just cause unbelievers and skeptics to to do a what? Do a double take? No, even Christians sometimes, we're reading that and it causes us to do a double take. Kids, when they read this for the first time, what? People live that long? What is going on here? Adam was 930 years old? He was 130 years old when he had his son? This is totally outside the realm of everything that we would consider normal or natural. This is just a hard pill to swallow. In fact, this pattern of what's said here about Adam, it's just continually repeated again and again and again. You have all of these paragraphs and it all kind of follows the same formula where here's a guy, he lived such and such years and he fathered a son. And then after that, he lived this many more years and X plus Y equals Z. This was the total amount of the days of his life. And we got these guys living hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Probably the one that we're most familiar with would be down in verse 27. Verse 27, thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. What is up with that? I mean, as Christians... We accept the Bible as being a book from God. It is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. And so hopefully we're going to accept this material as being true and factual because we believe this book is given to us by God. And just because we've got a bunch of old ages here that are kind of outside the scope of our comprehension, that doesn't mean that this is impossible. Just because we can't wrap our mind around it entirely does not mean that this is somehow impossible. What we believe about God is that God is capable of letting people live not just 969 years. God could let people live 9,969 years if He so chose. We believe that God is able to do that. We don't have any question about that in our mind. But an unbeliever, a Bible skeptic, they're going to look at a passage like this and they're going to say, that's just preposterous. That's ridiculous. How can you expect me to believe this? Look, we're on page 5 of the Bible. And we're already at something that's just really giving me some fits here. Come on, how do you deal with this? What do we say about that? I think there are actually very good reasons for a person to accept the factualness of people living these long lifespans. For example, God wanted the earth to be populated. That's what God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 verse 28. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. To that point in time, the earth was pretty much empty. You had two people and that was it. And so God says, I want the earth to be filled up. And so by providing men and women with the ability to live these long lives where they could bear children much longer and way past the point when we understand that we're able to bear children... Well, that would allow for the opportunity for the earth to be populated exactly as God wanted. I'd say as well, there does seem to be some genetic and climate and environmental differences in the world prior to the flood. 
And that is what's being described here, is the world prior to the flood. You know, the Bible is not a, a weather almanac, but the Bible, I think, does hint at the possibility that it maybe had never rained upon the earth prior to the flood. That maybe God had an entirely different system of watering the earth at that time prior to the flood. That would mean then that much of the harmful radiation that is caused by the sun would have been filtered out by all of the water in the atmosphere. It would cause for some changes in the climate in the way that the world functioned. Furthermore, the diet of people back then seems to have been different as well. We don't know everything about that. But it is certainly possible that the lifespans of these people were different because just the world was very different. And then finally, I would say this. There's just a lot about dying that we just don't know. Doctors and scientists cannot explain everything about everything as it pertains to death. In fact, I was doing some reading of some some scientists and some medical people, and it just seemed that there were some things that they were kind of acknowledging that just absolutely baffled them about aging and death even more so than people who lived an abnormally long period of time. That maybe, maybe we actually ought to live longer than we do. We just don't know. And so, I'm talking to my unbelieving friend, talking to my co-worker or family member maybe even who's skeptical about the Bible. Share some of those ideas with them. Maybe there's some other ideas you'll be able to share with me after services we'd want to add to that list. But can I tell you, once we maybe get done sharing some of those things with a non-believer, can I tell you what is just absolutely the most important and the most critical thing that we want to say to somebody if they bring this up and they want answers about this? What we want to say to them most of all is we want to say, hey, don't sweat Genesis chapter 5. We've got much bigger fish to fry. I think it is a mistake for us to get hung up on a passage like this which in many ways is Bible minutia. What are we going to say when we get to bigger stuff? What are we going to say when we move on to the book of Exodus and somebody starts asking questions about those ten plagues of Egypt? What are we going to say when someone asks about the Red Sea crossing? That's pretty hard to swallow. What are we going to say when we work through the Old Testament and we get to the story of Jonah and the giant fish and him being swallowed by that fish? What are we going to say about that? Most of all, what are we going to say when we get to the most important, miraculous, unexplainable thing that has ever occurred, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus coming forth from the grave, rising from the dead. That is way bigger than a guy who happened to live 969 years. All of human history pivots on that event. Your eternal destiny pivots on that event. Let's go to work on that. If you got some hang-ups about something in the Bible, I don't want to sit over here and get all hung up and tied up over something that really doesn't amount to anything. Let's go over here and work on this big thing. Let's work on accepting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And guess what? When people come to accept the reality and the truth of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, do you know what happens to all of that other smaller stuff? Well, that's easy to believe. Not a problem to swallow that. When you come to accept and understand that a man came forth from the grave according to biblical prophecy, exactly as it was said and exactly as it was determined to be, then all this other stuff's a piece of cake. Not hard to believe that at all, especially when you come to understand that Jesus, Jesus accepted the Old Testament. Jesus taught the Old Testament. 
Which means that all that stuff that's recorded in the Old Testament, hey, if Jesus believed it, and Jesus said it was true, and I believe and I accept that He was raised from the dead and He's the Son of God, well then obviously i got to accept everything else that's in the Old Testament as well. That's where we want to go. That's where we really want to direct people. We want to push people to understand about the resurrected Lord. In fact, if we spend all of our time convincing somebody to believe Genesis chapter 5 and these people lived all these hundreds of years, we do all this work and, okay, yes, I believe that and I accept that. And then we get over here to the New Testament and we start talking about Jesus being raised from the dead. They say, nah, I'm not going to believe that and they ain't never going to believe that. Then what have we accomplished? We've not really accomplished anything. We want to work on those bigger fish. We want to help people come to understand what is most important. And that is that Jesus came to this earth, that He died for our sins, that He was buried in the tomb, and on the third day He arose triumphantly as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And that seems to me to be the perfect way to extend the invitation of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Lord, Jesus the King, Right now. All of human history pivots on the resurrection of Jesus, but I'll say again, your eternal destiny pivots on the resurrection of Jesus. Do you believe that with all of your heart? That is what declares Him to be the Son of God with power. And if you do believe that, will you confess it? Will you acknowledge that with your lips before men? Will you be willing to turn away from sin, turn away from a life of of selfishness and only living for self? Turn to the Lord. Will you allow yourself, submit yourself to the waters of baptism where you can be united in the likeness of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You get to come up out of that water just as Jesus came up out of the tomb. Alive. Something brand new. You're now a Christian. Can we help somebody this evening to become a Christian? Brother or sister, if you've not been living faithfully for the resurrected Lord, if you've not been serving the King of Kings as you ought, then we are admonishing you through the words of this song to come back, to repent, to seize upon this moment right now, to call upon your brothers and sisters, to pray with you, to encourage you, to lift your hands, and to help you be restored to a right relationship with God once more. Whatever your need may be, you simply need to come to the front and make that known. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.